We're on the chapter on doctrine in Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. If you don't have a handout, I have some here. So, as I was um, saying last time, over the years, especially following the, the Second Great Awakening, so uh, mid to late 1800s, those who believe in the creed that states doctrine divides but love unites have argued that this was Paul's message, that, that this came from Paul himself. But in every case, and it, it, it reminds me of um, the Beatles, right? All you need is love. That was pretty much their, their mantra. The, the, this was in the church. All you need is love uh, because they, they go to 1 Corinthians 13. But in every case where people have used, you know, doctrine divides, but love unites, have used it, have used it inappropriately. I mean, they, they, they ripped the scripture, scripture out of its context. Even the famous love chapter, right? Love, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is situated in a doctrinal dispute. So there's doctrine all around that text. Okay? He had just expounded on the doctrine of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and how they were not showing love to their brothers and sisters. Then he expounded on the importance of church membership and how we are all members of one body and accountable to one another. Then after the chapter on love, he will explain how the miraculous gifts that is the gift of tongues, is neither here nor there. And what we ought to focus on is love and orderly worship. So whoever thought that love would lead to orderly worship. Usually love is based on emotion or feelings. And a lot of the folks that say, well, doctrine divides, love unites. Let's just have a concert for our worship service, right? They're not reading it as carefully as they should. Because there we would draw from, from the doctrine of the regulative principle of worship and how our worship ought to honor God first and foremost. Then he gets into the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15 and how it actually happened. So we can't use the love passage to say that doctrine divides but love unites. Love is founded on doctrine. Remember the question I asked last time. As soon as someone says this, you've got to ask them, well, what is love? And when you get into that conversation, doctrine comes up, right? There's a doctrine behind even the definition of love. Love has a context, even in the scripture. There is a context to how we love. What is appropriate for love and what is not appropriate for love? Does love allow your family member or friend to continue going off into sin? Would you do that with your children? They're disobedient and you just don't guide them or discipline them? No. Love disciplines, right? I'm not saying everybody has to use the paddle. I'm just saying there must be a form of discipline in the home for true love to exist, right? There's teaching behind it. Obviously, there are other passages that you can think of where it demonstrates that Paul was not indifferent to doctrine. But we're going to focus just on a few today. Because his 
doctrine, where did it lead Paul? We've got to ask that question. Where did it lead Paul in his ministry? It led him, actually, to more love and to more tolerance. When you really uh, read his letters, Machen compares two of Paul's letters. I would add a third one in there, and that is, as we discussed, his letters to the Corinthians. Though Paul was firm and gave stern warnings about the direction of the Corinthians, but he also showed the most patience, the most compassion, and the most love to the Corinthian church. See, sound doctrine should not lead us to be more strict with others than we are with ourselves. Right? That's backwards. But to be more understanding, more humble, and compassionate. Now think of the doctrine of total depravity. Right? When we understand how depraved we all are, What Jesus said about removing the log in our own eye before we take the speck out of our brothers, it becomes more clear because we realize how depraved I truly am, not how they truly are, right? Think of God's immensity in light of total depravity. How God is infinite, eternal, unable to count his years, as we we will find in Job. And think of his holiness, as we heard in our call to worship this morning from Isaiah. How holy he is, that Isaiah, a prophet of God, said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. That, that, that's the motto, should be the motto of every Christian. Okay, not just the unbeliever. Every Christian should say that in the presence of God. So it leads to humility. Listen to what Machen said. This is a quote from him. The more we know of God, the more unreservedly we will trust him. The greater our progress in theology, right, knowing the things of God, the simpler and more childlike will be our faith. So the more we know of God shouldn't lead us, like I said this morning, to pride, and to beating people up with with the truth, it should lead us to a more childlike faith. Though we don't compromise on it, but it leads us to humility, not the other direction. If that's happening, then there's something wrong here in, in, in communication, okay? And think of Paul's patience, compassion, and love to the Corinthian church. And they were messed up. One guy was sleeping with his stepmother. They were a messed up group. And there's a host of sins that they were guilty of we won't even get into. He told them if he is unrepentant, then he is to be excommunicated. But later, if you read it in context, 2 Corinthians, in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, it's about how this one man who was sleeping with his stepmother repented and he told them, told the Corinthians, they are to receive him back again. Why? Because he knows the gospel. He knows the gospel of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. This is why the gospel and knowing the doctrines of the gospel should lead us to humility. Um, 
Now, we've already discussed how Paul's letters to the Corinthians were highly doctrinal. They were all throughout it from beginning to end. There's doctrine all over the Corinthian letter. You can't escape it. But Machen compares Paul's letter to the Philippians with that of the Galatians. Both churches were dealing with some bad teachers. Okay? But for some reason, Paul was more tolerant with the teachers in the Philippians letter than he was with the teachers in the Galatians letter. Why? He had a totally different tone, and the words he used says it all. Uh, let us read Philippians 1, 15 to 18. You can turn there if you'd like. Uh, it, it will bring more clarity to the issue here. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. I don't know how you would do that, but anyway. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. So he is saying, hey, it doesn't matter what their motives are. Whether they're bad or good. And I would add every fallen, sinful preacher has mixed motives. Okay, that's one thing I've learned in my church history course by my former pastor, Carl Truman. Don't think any of, you know, any of these histories you read about, oh, he was reluctant to preach and then he ended up preaching. He wanted to preach. Don't believe that. Nobody preaches who doesn't want to preach and everyone has mixed motives. Okay, but anyway, he said as long as the doctrine is sound and the doctrine is preached, that's what matters, not the motive. Now, it matters when it comes to God, right? Because God sees all things and he judges the, judges the hearts of men and we will be held to a higher standard. But as long as the doctrine is going forth and it is preached, they are preaching Christ as it is in the gospel, then he rejoices. He's rejoicing that the gospel is going forth. Because how do people come, come to faith? By hearing the word of Christ. By hearing true doctrine, and that's how they are saved. Because false doctrine, preached by someone who poses to be a nice guy, who poses to have a smile here and there, right? He's smiley-faced. We probably know someone. We're thinking of someone right now. Um, false doctrine preached by someone like that cannot save. It can't save. But true doctrine, even from a bad teacher, does save. That's what he's saying in Philippians chapter 1. So it doesn't matter their motives as long as the doctrine is sound. Now compare the Philippians, right, to the Galatians. What was wrong in Galatia? We read it in the beginning of Galatians. I don't have the verse here. It's the first chapter. You could probably find it in there. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And he meant it. He said it twice. He was so angry, he said it twice. He repeats himself. Let him be accursed. He said even an angel. I mean, think of how many so-called cults, other religions who claim to be of God, and they say, well, an angel told me to do this, or I had a vision about this. Paul says, let them be accursed if it does not line up with the gospel that he preached. Okay? Let them be damned to hell. That's basically what he is saying. Let them go to hell. Paul was angry. And now related to our situation in the church, we think of the cultural climate, we tend to get more angry over moral issues around us than we do about doctrine. Not that the moral issues shouldn't get us angry, it should get us angry, but how often are we this angry with false doctrine? I didn't plan this, by the way. I didn't plan that the sermon would be about the same thing I was teaching on. That wasn't planned. Uh, God's providence. But But you see, that's backwards. That's backwards because the salvation of souls depends on sound doctrine. No one is going to be saved because they're good people. Okay? They're praying. They're reading their Bible. They're doing good works in the community. They have nice families. But if they believe the wrong doctrine, they will not be saved in the end. Right? We see it all the time. People carrying Bibles, reading their Bibles. Some of them are Jehovah's Witness. Some of them are Mormons. We believe their doctrine is leading them to destruction. Because we believe that's what the scripture teaches. So they can have their life all together. They could be cultural Christians. But their souls are heading in a different direction. Because they do not believe in the gospel of Christ. That's what Paul is trying to tell them. The only way of salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Not because people are nice. We have a lot of nice people in the world. Thank God for nice people. That's his provision in nature. He provided nice people in nature. That's a good thing. We should pray for more nice people. But we should also pray for their souls to be saved by the true doctrine of Christ. What was wrong with the false teachers that were influencing the Galatians? They were teaching that in order to be saved, you must believe in Jesus Christ and keep the law the best you can. In this case, they were imposing circumcision, but we know that was part and parcel of obeying the whole law. That is why Paul would later say, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Do we do them? No. No one does. Not even Israel, who possessed the law. Mind you, the Jews who still possess the law, they, they don't do them. The gospel is the only remedy. You're probably still asking, why was Paul so mad? Why would he fuss over what seems to many, especially to liberals, something that is so small? Is it small? 
In actuality, as Christians, when we hear false doctrine, it should ignite a righteous indignation within us. Because it is a denial of what God has done in Christ. What he has done for our salvation. And in the end, it is a denial of God himself. Instead, we get more caught up and upset over cultural problems. While we're allowing false doctrine to creep into our churches. That's what was happening in Machen's time. They were so hung up in trying to keep influence in the world. They, they wanted to keep their influence and, you know, they wanted to Christianize the culture and false doctrine just creeped in. They were so distracted that they weren't sound in their doctrine and they weren't making sure their ministers were sound in their doctrine and the church went liberal. And we'll say, hey, he's brave. He's standing for something. And I say something that's not the gospel. And get this, Paul was so angry that he wishes ill on these false teachers. He wishes ill on the fall, his false teachers. See, before we run to the love passages or passages uh, about unity or the passages about not being a controversialist, right? The liberals were using those texts against the conservatives of Machen's day and ripped them out of context. Before we go to the Sermon on the Mount and rip that out of its context, Read Galatians 5.12. Read Galatians 5.12. Uh, I remember, I, I forgot, it was a decade ago when, um, when Reformed theology was popular and some were trying to make uh, Christianity great again. Um, there were a lot of people coming out saying they had life verses. Um, if you have a life verse, that's fine. I'm not trying to put you down for having a life verse. But has anybody chosen Galatians 5.12 as a life verse? I wonder. I wonder. I will preach on this verse one day when the children are all grown up. But mind you, he, he says this right before he describes the fruit of the Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit back then, in Machen's time, in the culture, just as it is now, is compromise for the sake of unity. Compromise the truth of God for the sake of unity. Don't get into theological or doctrinal arguments with your brothers and sisters of other denominations because that is not loving. Today, according to our culture, the fruit of the Spirit is political correctness. Christians shouldn't say anything that would offend people. Then you read Galatians 5.12. Speaking of those who add works to the gospel. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I laugh every time I read that. I don't know about you. But he is saying, you want to impose circumcision, you want to add works to the gospel, I wish they would just go all the way with it. Cut it all off. Consider themselves neutered. Okay, that's what he is saying. Neuter yourself. He was serious about doctrine. That doesn't sound loving, Paul. What about 1 Corinthians 13? See, th this is why you can't just apply scripture whenever you want because you feel disturbed about something. 
Scripture interprets Scripture. So let us never say that Paul was indifferent to doctrine for the sake of love and unity. Paul defended sound doctrine. Jude defended sound doctrine. John defended sound doctrine. Jesus defended doctrine. We shouldn't say that defending the faith is in itself unloving or not a display of the fruit of the Spirit. That is false. That is false. Don't let anyone turn, quote-unquote, the tables on you. That is the spirit of the age entering the church and trying to silence the church. And let us not believe that we're doing the right thing when we compromise on doctrine for the sake of church unity. In fact, church, uh, sound doctrine unites the church more than it divides us. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story about a church that I served for about a year and a half. Um, I was, uh, I had my mentor over me and I preached there regularly every week. Um, And he told me that, he told me about the history of the church before he got there. And now the church used to be this big OPC church. And at some point they split in two and, and a good majority of the people left the church over um, our doctrinal strictness, because we were strict in our doctrine, because we were very Presbyterian. We, we stuck to uh, our guns, so to speak, and, and we were highly doctrinal. So these, this group of so-called humble, non-doctrinal people left the church, and they went to go plant uh, another church. That was, the building itself was twice the size of the building they were in. And... <clears throat> And on the session, I believe it was, don't quote me on this, it was three or four elders on the session, including the pastor. And um, eventually, that same church who didn't want to force anybody into doctrine or, or preach too much about the doctrines that people disagree with, they split three ways. And now the church is much smaller than the original church they came out of in the OPC. Because each elder had a different view of whatever whether it's the end times or the order of worship, they weren't on the same page when it came to doctrine. And they split three ways. And all their followers followed the one who went which way, whatever. One joined one church down the road, the other one formed their own church and one stayed and they're all older people with no, really no generation to take over. Um, And that's, that's a sad situation. And part of the reason is because no, no one wanted to take a stance on doctrine and allow so-called humility or unity to rule over doctrine rather than doctrine ruling the unity. <clears throat> doctrine comes first. That's the foundation. And then we build the unity and the love. The love and the unity comes out of sound doctrine. Th- this is why we still require ministers to subscribe to the confessions and catechisms. And this is why we tell our lay people, even though you're not required to subscribe, but we're telling you, hey, in these books, read them. This is what we teach. This is so you won't be surprised. You won't come to church one day and be like, I didn't know they believed in that. No way, I'm out of here. This is why. We have them for you. You can read them. They're on our website. We have them in the back. We have a book of church order. Learn them for your own sake. So you're not coming in confused and saying, wait a minute, 
I didn't know they weren't dispensationalists. Right? I, I, I told someone, I, I believe last week, you know we ordain evangelists? That's another thing that a lot of people coming in, they, they don't know. That, that's just one example. For us, the evangelists that Paul mentions in Ephesians 4, they are ordained ministers. They're not lay people whom we force to go door to door during the week, and if they don't come back with a quota, you know, of all the people they evangelize, they're, they're going to be in trouble. No, we, we don't do that. We expect every lay person to share their faith. Yes, but that's a more private matter. But we ordain actual evangelists. These are who we call missionaries, church planters. A lot, a lot of folks don't know that. They come in and they, wait a minute, where's all the um, evangelistic efforts in the lay people? We need to form a committee for them. And if nobody joins, you guys are going the wrong way. Right? Um, we do have an evangelism committee, and we do a great job um, as far as getting events together and making opportunities. That's a good thing. But it's not law. Okay? There's a distinction. And so, um, and so we see there are differences, and we lay out those differences, and we say, hey, this is what we teach. This is what we subscribe to. This is our book of church order. Know it. For your, for your benefit and for ours as we teach. Um, and and we're, we're, we're going to try our best not to stray from it. Okay? Um, these are the doctrines we believe as a church. And we believe the church, as a church that the Bible teaches. And now you know what we believe. And you have options before you join. You won't be surprised. We give you time. You know, take your time before you become members. Um, so Machen concludes that Paul was not merely concerned with Jesus' ethical principles, but with Christian doctrine at the center of Christianity. Now, some would try to claim that Paul introduced an entirely different and new religion than that of Jesus and his disciples. But this is evidently false in 1 Corinthians 15 and many other texts for that matter. You think of the entire book of Acts, Think of Galatians 2, where he described being received by the disciples, etc. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter that unites the entire New Testament together. Right? It brings it all together. This is the church's mission, to preach this. Christ died according to the scripture. He rose according to the scriptures. Right? And then preach on the resurrection and how one day we will be raised and how then should we live? Yet others would think that what is fundamental to Christianity is the universal fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of all mankind, or Jesus' character, the golden rule, etc. But that's not the central message of the gospel. Nothing can be further from the truth. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15. You'll find the primary and primitive message of the early church was not humanitarian or the quest for moral improvement, but it was Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The Christian message is historical and doctrinal. Christ died, that is history. Christ died for our sins, that is doctrine. If you don't have these two elements joined together, 
in an indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. So the early Christian missionaries were not spreading a message about how Jesus lived this wonderful life and how you should live it too and how you need to follow it. No, the early disciples um, preached this gospel. Did they live ethical lives? Of course they, they did. But their lives were founded on a message. Without Christ's death and resurrection, Christianity would have been powerless. There would be no hope. What would be the point? If all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, what would be the point of spreading some ethical message? But the fact that Jesus was raised is what instituted the most important spiritual movement the world has ever seen. So Christianity is not a mere comprehension of ethical or eternal principles. It was a historical message. It actually happened. It was the message, he is risen. So they weren't only concerned with what he said, but primarily with what he had done. The world is to be redeemed through the proclamation of an event that is historical. And when we define the meaning of the event, that is doctrinal. That is doctrine. Okay. What this means to you, what his resurrection means for you, that's doctrine. It's not just merely application, it's doctrine that we apply to you. To combat this idea, many have run back to Christ and try to isolate his words from Paul's words. Think the Sermon on the Mount. They isolate it from the rest of the Bible to prove their own point. They believe that Jesus taught the ethical principles that we need to live by while Paul taught doctrine. This is what the liberals began to teach. Again, that would be to rip Jesus' words out of the context of the entire Bible and also to ignore ignore large portions of Jesus' teaching on his own deity. He reveals his deity and the way of salvation. We went through Gospel of Mark recently. If we were to read that quickly without really paying attention, yeah, maybe we can conclude, oh, Jesus taught more about ethics than he did about uh, his deity and salvation. No, if you look closely, read the text in its context. Read the text in the context of how the Jews would have read that text. You would see what he was doing. We know Jesus didn't just come out and say, I'm God, follow me. No, he didn't do that. He communicated the way the Hebrews and, and, and the Jews would have communicated. Okay? So we need to read it in its proper context. Because the Christian religion derives its power from the message of the redeeming work of Christ, not the moral or ethical principles. Without that message, Jesus and his disciples would have been forgotten like every other guru, cult leader we have in the world. It wouldn't have lasted this long. But to the early disciples, the power of the message, no, sorry, to the liberals, the power of the message is found in the ethical principles that Jesus shared with us. The truth is the ethical principles that we find in Christianity is founded upon the proclamation of an event. Jesus proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is something supernatural and heavenly. 
Not merely earthly, not merely ethical or moral. Jesus not only announced this event, but also the meaning of the event. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He wasn't just content with announcing permanent ethical principles or some philosophy of religion, but he came to announce the kingdom and the king would give his life for his people. But not only did Jesus announce an event, he also presented himself and his own person. Liberals have tried to deny this and say they, that he kept himself out of the gospel. He wasn't just referring to himself. He was referring to the kingdom of heaven, which is uh, something we build on this earth based on ethical principles. And he was no more than a supreme prophet. But that is false. He time and time again proclaimed himself as the supreme object of faith and the judge at the end of days. He wasn't claiming to just be a mere philosopher. He was claiming to be the very son of God who will one day return and judge the world. He wasn't just a mere teacher of ethics. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, he elevates himself to a position of authority when he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, no mere prophet would say that. The prophets used to say, thus saith the Lord, not, but I say to you, on my own authority. But Jesus did say that. Another passage famously used by liberals to defend a salvation based on works is when Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? They're probably thinking of Machen. And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, the workers of lawlessness. Well, if you use that text for the sake of a works-based salvation, you would be ignoring some important points in the passage. First, they are calling him Lord, Lord. Unlike the Pharisees. Jesus is setting himself up in that text as the Lord and judge of the world who will sit on a throne and decide who enters and who doesn't enter the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, he is addressing all professing Christians who acknowledge him as their Lord. So they have doctrine. They know the doctrine. But based on what they have done, the fruits of their lives, they were never true believers. That's what's going on. Jesus, in that text, is addressing fruit. Not how you're saved. Okay? He's not addressing how you are saved. He is just judging the evidence. He's judging according to works, not by works. There's a difference. Uh, judging someone by their works, we would all fail. We would never meet the standard. But judging someone according to works, saying, well, based on what I see, 
I think he's a Christian. But if someone is living a lawless life, we can conclude, say, I don't think he's a Christian and he should be made aware of that. Even when we consider applying the golden rule as a universal application of ethics, this is where he gets good. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Will this really resolve all of society's problems? Think about it. Is this the way the government should govern? I don't think so. Right? The, the, the world governments, they hold a sword, not the golden rule. Try helping a drunkard in this way, he says in the book. Actually, his best friend, um, in Phila- I believe in Philadelphia, was a former drunkard. So he has, some, he, he has a lot of experience with um, drunkards, uh, Machen did. And um, some of his closest friends were drunkards uh, before and became Christians, or they, you know, they were still drunkards. Um, but use this golden rule with a drunkard, and you'll distrust, distrust the modern interpretation of the golden rule. The problem is that drunkards' companions apply the golden rule all too well. They buy him a drink. Because that's what a drunkard would want you to do for him, right? That's the golden rule. They would, they would uh, or, or that's what the companions would want the drunkard to do for them. See, the error consists in supposing that the golden rule and the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to the whole world when in fact it was addressed and can only be displayed in his disciples, only. It was to distinguish Jesus' disciples from the rest of the world. It's not going to work well for unbelievers. It's not going to work well for the governments of the world to apply the golden rule. Because these are persons in whom a great change has occurred, the disciples. A change which fits them for entrance into the kingdom of God. Without this change, these rules become a source of great despair. Right? What what does the law do? The law drives us to Christ. It shows us our sin. We are convicted of sin. We go to Christ for forgiveness. And then, by His Spirit, He empowers us to live godly lives. It's a power that unbelievers don't have. So for governments of the world, or the U.S. government, To use the golden rule to govern society would be a mess. I recently heard of, I think it was my wife that brought it up, one one of the northern European nations that treat their prisoners better than, uh, the prisoners are treated better better than the, the citizens. Okay? Some of them have nice apartments. They can leave the prison when they want, right? Go work a, I don't know if it's a nine-to-five job or a part-time job, come back to the prison, which, again, is their own personal apartment where everything's provided. They, they taste foods from all over the world. And you're thinking, wow, I might as well commit a crime. For me, you know, the, the average person, that's the way they'll think. They'll say, well, what's the point? I'm, I'm working hard to build my own lifestyle, and 
they get it from committing crime. But that's when governments take on this golden rule and apply it to criminals, that's what you get. That's what you get. So the golden rule was not meant for unbelievers. It was meant for believers. Not for us. Not, not for unbelievers. Not, not for those who have not come to Christ. If you notice in that passage, Matthew 5, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, not to the crowd. There were two groups of people there. The crowds, he saw the crowds, but then he spoke to his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount was meant for his people. So his message to the world would be, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Okay, that's the message we give to the whole world. He wasn't speaking as a philosopher calling pupils to his school, but as one who was in possession of rich stores of divine grace, and he sealed that grace with his death on the cross. It is not enough to believe that Jesus was a moral teacher or a moral leader, but he is the divine son of God who took on flesh, who was born of a virgin, died a sacrificial atoning death on the cross for our sins, and was raised for our justification. All this to say, doctrine is the foundation of the Christian religion. The problem with liberalism is that it is devoted to sentimentality, emotionalism, or romanticism, over against doctrine and reason. They say, just follow your heart. We say in response, don't do that. Your heart is deceitfully wicked. Look to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And these doctrines have been collected and taught in our confession of faith and catechisms. And the theologians of old, such as John Calvin, Francis Turretin, and the Westminster Divines. Today, many in the church attack these names without considering that they are also attacking the doctrines of Scripture and the teachers whom the Lord gave us as gifts to the church. We're just about to wrap up, so in conclusion, I would like to share that we do not mean that doctrine is the, is, uh, I would like to share what we do not mean, that doctrine is the foundation of Christianity. We do not mean that it makes no difference to our lives. From the beginning, Christianity was certainly a way of life because the message was salvation from sin and it affected an immediate moral change. But how? The question is how? When you come to church, are you coming to hear a pep talk or a TED talk? No. You're here to hear the message of the foolishness of the cross. It was through doctrine. Secondly, we do not mean that all points of doctrine are equally important. Okay? It is possible for Christian fellowship to be maintained despite our differences in lesser of doctrines. One example could be our difference of opinion on the Lord's return. Um, within the OPC, we have ministers who are amillennial, that's the majority, postmillennial, and premillennial, not dispensationalists, that's different. Uh, now, we are not indifferent to these doctrines because we still believe them and we teach. Uh, 
our conviction that there, there are some who are in error. Uh, like in the OPC, we're mostly amillennial. So we believe the post-millennial and the pre-millennial are in error. We, we, I'll teach that from the pulpit. I'm not going to hold back. And the error of the Chiliest, or Chiliest, I don't know who, how you pronounce that, who believes that Christ will come and radically change and transform our current politics and society. That, that's what we call dispensationalism. You can't be ordained in the OPC and be a dispensationalist. Uh, Machen believe, believed it was grave error. Uh, so that's different from error, and that's close to heresy. Okay. So the, 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 the statement of the OPC is that you're one step away from heresy if you're a dispensationalist. So we don't, we don't teach that, and we do not ordain ministers who are dispensationalists. So we're not saying that these are completely unimportant topics. But we do still believe that these brothers, though they're in error, still believe that the Bible is inerrant. And their errors are not deadly errors. Another example would be our differences on the sacraments. Again, we're not indifferent to the sacraments. And we teach according to our convictions. But we still share a common fellowship outside of our immediate fellowship in the OPC. Other topics are topics of church government, the nature and prerogatives of the Christian ministry, Calvinism versus Arminianism, etc. But we all share in common that Christianity is based upon history, something that happened, and the Christian disciple is primarily a witness. And this witness is bound to tell the truth. It is, we are bound to teach doctrine. Just like a witness who takes the stand in court. He puts his left hand on the Bible and raises his right hand and swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It doesn't matter what they wore that day, right? It matters what they say. It doesn't matter how well he speaks to entertain the judge or the others. It matters the truth that he speaks. I'll close by quoting Machen himself. If we are to be truly Christians, then it does make a vast difference what our teachings are. And it is by no means aside from the point to set forth the teachings of Christianity in contrast with the teachings of the chief modern rival of Christianity, which is liberalism. And this is the same enemy we have today. Any questions, comments? I know that was a lot. If you followed it and you have a question on your mind, you can ask. Feel free. Or comment. I had one, but I forgot what it was. Well, uh, I'll just make my one comment, and that is that we, we have to live with some religion. It's not going away. It does nothing but grow. Yeah. The easy message, and that's what people like, the easy messages. We just haven't been vocal enough against liberals to stop them. And that's what we should have should have done long ago. Machen learned firsthand when he went up against them in the 1920s and they threw him out of the church. Yeah. They had taken the church over and they're taking over everything. Well, I'll correct you on that point. All right. It wasn't the liberals that threw him out. It was the moderates. Okay. So these are the guys who weren't who weren't really liberal, but they wanted a more um, unifying voice, a more uh, 
compromising voice for the church. And Machen wasn't that. I mean, this guy, he threw his, right. his light. He, remember, Machen was wealthy. He was rich. He had everything. I mean, his parents were both, both came from wealth. He, got, he forsook it all. He said, forget cultural influence. I don't care about that. I don't care about holding status in society. He was, I mean, he was one of the elites, right? He knew, you know, Rockefeller and Woodrow Wilson. They, he, they knew him personally. So he was of the elite class. He said, forget it all. He was outnumbered. He was outnumbered, yeah. And, and look, at, look at today's yep. world. Everybody's outnumbered. And my belief is that we've always been outnumbered. Even when we had Christendom, remember, Christendom was primarily in the West. The East was mostly pagan. All, all this time, you know. So, so um, uh, Machen was like, forget it all. I'm going to stand here on doctrine. Forget all this moralism in, in society and in the culture. You govern society differently. I just mentioned governments do not govern based on, on the Sermon on the Mount. You can't. It's impossible. They govern based on Romans 13, the sword. So you do govern society differently than you, you would govern the church. 